Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. So my guest today is a longtime friend of mine. His name is Doug Logan, and he's the Associate Director of Acts 29 and the founder and president of Grimkey Seminary. But when he and I met, it was long before all that. We were both attending a church planting conference for an organization called Global Church Advancement, or GCA. It was essentially a conference for reformed and reformed-minded church planners, most of them Presbyterian, and most of them educated well beyond either of us at the time. The whole thing was pretty heady stuff. I was in my 20s, Doug was a bit older than me, but we were both very green in ministry and feeling out of place. Was it 2005 that we met? Yeah. Yeah. We were in Orlando and like we were, <laughs> we were kind of fish out of water at that conference, if I remember right. You, were, you remember exactly right. I was new. I had been reformed about an hour and a half and <laughs> I had been with the white boys for about two hours. And so... <laughs> And I had never been around that many white people in my entire life in terms of Christians. And then the things that were being said, I never heard them before. So it was a full immersion baptism into Young Restless Reformed and then just Reformed faith, period. So let's back up a little bit. So describe for me kind of how you ended up there. Where'd you start from? Man, I came to faith. I grew up in a 50-50 Christian home. Father, mother was a, was a Christian. Father was an alcoholic, violent man. And by God's grace, he came to know Jesus in 1991. He's in glory with Christ right now. But he was a violent, abusive, adulterous man in my upbringing. So I grew up in the National Baptist Church. So I went to North Carolina A&T in Greensboro. So when I came out, my mother died in 83. So when I came out of A&T, I ended up back in Jersey, but in South Jersey, not North Jersey, at a National Baptist Church. And at that National Baptist Church, man, I heard the gospel, came to know Christ, got saved one night around three in the morning. The Lord saved me around three in the morning. Next thing you know, got married that next morning because I was living with my atheist girlfriend who's been my wife for 25 years. So when I came to Christ that night around three in the morning, I said, man, if you accept Christ, we can get married tomorrow. And, and she said something to the effect of, do you mean like pray and go to church and stuff? I said, yeah. So she said, okay, I'll pray and go to church and try to believe in God. So we drove to the Justice of the Peace and got married. That following week, I was preaching in front of family court on Vine Street in Philadelphia to the homeless folk. Wow. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, Doug and I talk about the road that led him from running a barbershop in New Jersey to interning at a historic, affluent Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, 
planting in Camden, New Jersey, and now starting Grimke Seminary. It's a fun ride, so stay with us. There must have been some sense of pastoral call on you. I mean, obviously from the beginning, if a week later you're preaching on the streets. Yeah, well, I owned a barbershop for about 12, about 10, 12 years. And during that barbershop, one of my strategies was to hire Christians because they wouldn't steal my money. And so... (laughs) (laughs) You hope. I hope, but... (laughs) Hey, listen, I'm, I'm a legalistic Christian. You're not allowed to steal or... I told you not a Christian. And um, one of them was instrumental along with Ty Tribbett and his family leading me to Christ because I cut their hair. And one of them's name is Jay Sykes, who is still my friend today. He was instrumental in leading me to Christ at the barbershop. So, oh, so you were, you owned the barbershop when you became a Christian. So these had Christians around you without necessarily, you weren't a Christian yourself. Exactly. So, Yeah. yeah. So one of them prophesied, it was a group of, Pentecostals, Baptists, Church of God in Christers. My boy Sykes that came, got ra- the Lord radically saved him from drug addiction and everything. And he would have what he called Ministers Monday. And the barbershop closed on Monday in the hood. So I went in there to get some clippers because I cut on the side on Monday. And I walked in there one morning, Mike, and the, one of the preachers said, we prophesy right now in Jesus' name, when you stop running that mouth for the devil and start running it for Jesus, God's going to make you a pastor. And all your anti-white stuff is going to stop. And Mm. God is going to make you pastor a white church just because you want to be so blackety black, black, black. And we declare and decree in Jesus name right now. And I said, F all y'all. Y'all ain't nothing but a bunch of pimps and hustlers. And I walked out the shop. So a couple weeks later, Mike, I went to a Bible study with Sykes. I was going through some stuff and they talked that dispensational talk that Last Trump, man, I lived next to a fire department. The, the, the alarm went off. I thought it was the last Trump. I thought I was left behind. Huh. So I ran outside, underwear and everything, looking for crashed planes because they told me the planes are going to be crashed because if a Christian's on it, he's going to get raptured. So I'm looking for crashed planes and crashed cars. And I called Sykes, too scared to call him because it was three in the morning. If he didn't answer, that means he was he was raptured and I was left behind. And I was going to have to get in the market of beast and all this other stuff, man. So I called Sykes. He answered the phone, cussed me out for calling at three in the morning. I told him I'm good. Went and got married. So from that, I prayed. My prayer of salvation was, Lord, them prayers that them preachers prayed, I'll be a pastor. I'm going to do whatever you said. Since I'm a Christian now, whatever I said, I'm going to be a preacher. So I immediately thought salvation equal preaching. <laughs> wow. You mentioned anti-white stuff that this pastor called out in you. What was that about? Well, man, I just didn't like white people. I had them as the source of racism, slavery, and they were a big part of my struggles, my anger, my angst, my all of those things bottled up in what I thought was a true identity of a real African-American was the anger against white folk for all that they've done to create the conditions 
in my community and my people and in me. And mm. so I had a deep disdain for white people. I mean, if you came in my apartment back then, Mike, I had a 16 by 20 of Malcolm X with his speeches rolling at all times. I had Marcus Garvey books and all types of stuff around. Yeah, I was an angry, angry person. And then I'm dating a white girl. Ain't that crazy? And <laughs> <laughs> so God in his grace and in his providence and in his beautiful cosmic sense of humor takes away my white anger with first the gospel, then with the woman I married the next day. <laughs> it wasn't very long after becoming a Christian that Doug found himself facing a different kind of racial tension. This time, a hostility towards his wife. Even when I candidated for pastorate, I remember one lady so boldly told me I was in Virginia candidating at a church. And she said, I think you can preach, but I'd have a white woman as the first lady of this church over my dead body. So, yeah. And so I experienced that level of racism against my wife. So those things began to push me and drove me. And I got with a couple of people. One happened to be a Calvinist. And then I found out I was a Calvinist. And then when I found out I was a Calvinist, a black preacher told me that I was a white man idolatrous. I said, I didn't know I could do that. Um, <laughs> which then I left from there, Mike, ended up candidating at a church, an all-white, 100-year-old church in Philadelphia called Calvary Bible Church. And I was at that church when me and you met in 05. So I got called to, to be the, the, the senior pastor there back in 2003. And then when I got to Philly, man, I was, you know, I was a Jersey boy. Man, I met up with a young, a, a, a old man named Dr. Bill Crispin, OPC minister, OPC, the only Presbyterian church. I joke. <laughs> and um, the, uh, I jokingly call him now the old Presbyterian church. And um, can, can we pause for a minute and talk about how appropriate it is that you you found out you were a Calvinist? You didn't become a Calvinist. You discovered you had already been been one. So. <laughs> I feel like that works poetically in certain ways. No, no, brother, we can pause. Yeah, so the guys I rolled with, the young guys, in the African-Americans in the church, they would go, they would sneak to 10th Presbyterian Church evening service under the preaching of Dr. Montgomery Boyce. What we were known for was going to that evening service, Mike, and saying he never said Presbyterian, he never said Calvinism, he never said Reformed. So we called Montgomery Boyce a Biblicist. Mm -hmm. And his sermon explained, you know, he always used the language of sovereignty. He didn't have to wrestle with a whole bunch of predestination and election. He kept saying, God sovereignly saves and you can't save yourself. And we were like, yeah, we agree. And then mm -hmm. if Jesus doesn't save you, you can't be saved. Yeah. And you can't lose it because if God gave it, his sovereignty uh, stopped. I was like, yeah, no, that was good news to us. We, couldn't, we struggled with infant baptism, but we loved the preaching. So we would go to boys, steal his sermons and preach it and teach it in our Sunday school classes. And then we were accused of being Calvinists. We just thought we were Bible boys because we were using ghetto Greek and homeboy Hebrew talking that talk like boys did. And I mean, we thought we were pretty biblical. That guy was biblical and solid. And we just stole his stuff and preached it. That's how we found out. We were Calvinists and mm. were refuted and told we can't teach that here and all of that type of stuff. So 
as I wrestled with Calvinism, man, I understood Calvinism through, I'm from the hood. The hood gets done dirty. We get the worst water, never get cleaned up. We got the roughest parks that go unattended. We got the slowest police response, the worst textbooks, the roughest raggediest schools, because somehow there's a lack, there's an injustice and an inconsistency and a bias that seems to be bent against the hood. The hood gets worse and, the, and in my youth, you know, I understood that, you know, the suburbs were great and the hood was bad and it kept getting worse. And so there was inconsistency, there was improprieties, there was just doing the hood dirty. I found out Calvinism said, God don't do nobody dirty because he elects according to his sovereignty, according to his good pleasure. So there would be no racism that could block me from salvation or block anybody in the hood from becoming a Christian. Why? Because the system can't be rigged by any people group like we've been getting done dirty in the hood from legislation, from government and everything. God don't operate like that. So then the greatest level of fairness and justice and equality that Malcolm X talked about, freedom, justice, and equality, didn't come from revolution, though it did. It came from the revolution of Jesus on the cross. Now, if the hood can hear this, the angst that they have and their anger that they had that I had, they'll find out, yo, freedom, justice, and equality is in Jesus. And we don't gotta wear suits and kick me, kill me shoes. We can keep wearing hoodies and Tims. We can be who we are in Christ. And we don't have to accuse the white church of mistreatment. Christ is our savior. And we're gonna build our own churches. And we pray that our white brothers love us, party with us and rock with us. But we've gotta reach this hood with the gospel. And the reform faith for me at that point was authentic hope and now it rebuked my old racism and it gave me energy moving forward and if that's what calvinism is i'll take it along with an embrace of reformed theology early on doug had a desire to see a different way of doing church Back when he was running the barbershop, he was leading people to Jesus and struggling to get them connected into local church communities. That experience formed the kernel of an idea that would come to fruition many years later when he became a church planter. I love the black church. I love the hood in all of its mess and confusion and craziness. I love it. I love when the fire hydrants going and the girls are jumping double dutch. However, the elements of my traditional church excluded in many ways, cultural relevance and authentic missional engagement into the block. And so it wasn't for a needing a break from them, it was for seeking a more effective plan to reach. And I'm a, just a church boy who believes in deference and I wanna respect my elders, so I didn't wanna rebel, I wanted to build. I went to a traditional Black Baptist church I was loved there, I met Jesus there. However, there was a whole constituency of bros in the hood on the block who found no home there. So 
cultural relevance was a big deal for me. And that's my Issacharian understanding that I learned later, that they understood the times and what Israel should do. And then that's the Berean in me that wanted to seek the scriptures and know the scriptures, right? So I wanted to operate in those because I believe the gospel had an answer for everything. So I said, well, the pull I have is the pull that so many people I know that came into my barbershop and that I grew up on the streets with. Because even people I was leading to Christ, Mike, at the barbershop struggled to come to my church because they were they were gangsters, thugs from Camden. They were like, nah, I just love Jesus. So I wanted to create a place that was more effective in discipleship for them. And mm -hmm. yeah, so that's what it was for me. It was me seeking a way to build something that would not just reach, but develop urban dwellers that came to know Christ. And they would come to my church one week with jeans and a hoodie on, and they would get looked at funny as if they can't wear that to church. They weren't coming back. They came in smelling like weed. They was rebuked and conversations had to be had. Nah, you got to put folk in the crock pot. You can't put them in salvation on Saturday. And then all of a sudden they are perfect Sunday to first Sunday at church. And then they were getting ran off. Not all of them are going to wake up at three o'clock in the morning and tell their girlfriend we're getting married the next day or we're breaking up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might not happen. And so I, that's what I wanted. People were coming to Christ that couldn't go to church with me. And when they went, they, they didn't like it and they were angry. And sometimes they still cussed and sometimes they still got drunk and smoked weed. And listen, I, I want to believe I was a disciple maker and crockpot Christianity is what the Bible teaches, sanctification. And so I wanted to walk in that. And that's what broke me away from the traditional church. And just to be straight, like I endured a lot of racism by my wife being white as I sought to be a pastor in a tradition in traditional national Baptist settings. I got rejected by God's beautiful grace. He didn't want me there because if he wanted me there, he would put me there, but he sent me in my former black hating self. Now with my new white wife to a historic <laughs> white Plymouth brethren church in the hood where I was <laughs> the first member that was black. <laughs> wow. And I was the pastor and them ladies loved me supported me, prayed for me. Some of them spoke in tongues over me, anointed me with oil. So yeah, so when I got there, it was for me a breath of fresh air and I still had big love for the traditional church. But, you know, I'm a mama's boy and mama told me I can't disrespect my elders. So I tried to have good conversations, healthy conversations about what I had been learned. And often I was dismissed as hanging around the white boys and uh, being a Calvinist and not wearing a suit and tie and not using the King James Version. And so I just wasn't interested in that because I'm ducking bullets. I'm at the jail. I can't argue with believers about other believers and them not believing the way they want them to believe. I ain't got time for that. I got to make some disciples and honor Christ because Man, I'm called to make disciples. I took that serious. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition 
serving nearly 100 different denominations. Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. Doug described his years of pastoring at Calvary as being like a guy doing a home improvement project for the first time, constantly having to go back to Home Depot or consult YouTube only to finally realize he lacks the tools to do the project. He was convinced he needed to learn more, to grow more, to really pastor well. So he helped orchestrate another church coming in to take over Calvary's facility and came on staff as an interim at a Presbyterian multi-site church in Philly called Liberty. It was during that time that he got to know three people who would dramatically reshape his future. Eric Mason, pastor of Epiphany Church, and Philip Ryken and Marion Clark, who were both at 10th Presbyterian. I was there for about a year, and there God just pressed on me that uh, I got a good salary and everything there, but that church was primarily all white. Great people. I love those people. Those people took great care of me, but I realized there still wasn't a voice pounding living out the gospel missionally in community in a hostile world. And I resigned from there. And by God's grace, Mason took me in to the residency. But before that, Marion Clark was my good friend, executive pastor at 10. And so was Phil Reichen, who I called Dr. Phil. And, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I came over to talk to him and told him what I was going through. He took me out to his favorite restaurant, Black Sheep in Philly, and had pulled turkey, which was one of my greatest meals. And he just, and I was crying. I said, Mary, I don't know I'm going to feed my family. He said, well, each, each bull turkey, it's good. Don't worry about that. We're going to take care of that. Now, Marion is five, one, and he's a tiny little fellow, 120 pounds, maybe five, one. He says, Doug, don't worry about that, man. Jesus knows all about it. Eat your, bull, eat your bull turkey. It's wonderful here. And I'm panicking, freaking out. <laughs> he touches my hand and says, calm down, man. Jesus is so good to us. You know, you don't deserve the pastor, right? Uh, I, I said, yeah. He said, so if this works out, it's a gift, ain't it? 
I said, I guess I'll eat this pulled turkey. <laughs> and then he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk to Eric. I love how he called Fasty Eric. We're going to talk to Eric. We're going to devise a plan that's going to be good because we're not so Presbyterian that we don't partner with our Reformed brothers. And we love Eric. We love you. And I said, okay, I'm coming down. So I have a meeting the next week with the whole church planting committee. And they say, Doug, we talked. We're going to give you $50,000 because you and Eric, you said you want to do a residency with Eric Mason. I said, yeah. Well, do you have the residency written? I text Eric. He said, no. (laughs) (laughs) He said, we can do it quick. And I said, okay. Next thing you know, Mike, they called another organization. They matched my funds. So I had two years support, started the residency. Phil Riken said, well, here's our condition. You have to be with us two days and you can be with Epiphany Philly the rest. And so I'll give you this ghetto geography. So Epiphany Philly is in the hood on on 17th and Diamond. And 10th Presbyterian Church is on 17th and Spruce. So I always joke and said, I drove from Beirut to Beverly Hills. <laughs> I pastored in Beirut and Beverly Hills on in the same day. And um, Paul Tripp then became my mentor. He adopted me. Paul Tripp just embraced, adopted me, loved me, developed me, cried with me, prayed with me, gave me money, man, got me through it, gave me every book on earth. And so, yeah, that's what happened. So 10th and Epiphany partnered for me to do a dual residency, two days at 10th and the other days at Epiphany Philly under Eric Mason. So that's what happened. I ended up at 10th, went through the ordination process, passed, became a official baby baptizer in 2008 or 2009. Doug's plan at the end of his residency was to go to Germantown, a neighborhood in Northwest Philadelphia. But as often happens in ministry, God took him in a different direction. Man, we want to go to a, a interracial community and help people come out of the fear and the isolation and the racism and the the bigotry of those relationships. And so I was going to plant in Germantown, which was a little bit hood, but not very hood. And then one day, about three months in, after we had staff meeting, we were heading to lunch and Phil said, where you going, Doug? I said, I'm going with you because you treat me. You got all that money. Joke, I ain't got no money. <laughs> so Phil said, and Doug also, you keep talking about Germantown. I believe God is calling you to plant a church in Camden. I looked at old pretty Phil Riken and I said, Phil, you go plant a church in Camden. <laughs> church in Camden? You crazy? Jokers have killed me. And he says, listen, I've called this out before and I got refused on it. And I could tell you two times I told people that they wound up planting in the city. So don't be, don't be shocked. I get out of that staff meeting, Mike. I go to Epiphany. So staff meeting at 10th was Tuesday morning. So I would go to staff meeting Tuesday morning from nine to lunch. Epiphany staff meeting was at five. So I get to Epiphany and then I got there and I was talking to E. And E said, Doug, I've been thinking. I said, what's up? I don't know about Germantown, Doc. I said, what you mean? Doc, I think you, I think God's calling you to Camden. I said, you've been talking to that old skinny Phil Riken. <laughs> Y'all conspiring against me, Doc. He said, 
I don't even got four right phone number. <laughs> I, I was like, you serious? So I, I finished staff. Angel said she got off early. So I went and grabbed her from South Philly. So I said, babe, in the same day, I've been told I'm supposed to plant in Camden. Let's drive to Camden and prove to them that God ain't calling us. We drive across that bridge to go to Camden. Mike, when I tell you, I'm from the hood, Mike. I locked my doors and I was scared. I'm just gonna keep it on. I said, oh my goodness, I ain't planting no church over here. So we rolled through for about 30 minutes, but I had to stop and pray because Angel said, we gotta pray. So I pulled over right before I got on the bridge and she looked at me and she said, it looks like the devil pulled a vacuum up and sucked the hope out of the whole city. Hmm. She said, we gotta plant a church here. I said, well, let's pray that God send somebody to do that. Not, and I prayed that God would send somebody to do that. And we rode home and she looked at me sideways like, you know, that's not what I said, right? <laughs> I just ignored it, put on some music, played it loud and was singing the words I didn't even know because I did not want to think about it, talk about it. You know me, Mike, I go to bed like 8.30. So I get in the bed. The Lord has disturbed my sleep. I get up at 10.30 and drive back over to Canada, ride around again. Man, I broke down in tears for about 25 minutes, pulled over to the side of the road. And I said yes to the Lord. And I had less fear. I guess when I went back by myself, 10.30, it was rougher out there, but I wasn't scared no more. I don't know, it was weird. I just felt a draw and a pull to reach these people with the gospel to now live out the gospel Michelin community in a hostile world. And man, I called Tiff that morning, was up half the night praying, told Angel. She said, I told you, Joker. And she went on to work and I called Tiff and Rankin said, I told you. <laughs> and Mason said, I told you. And that's what happened. <laughs> so from there, we decided to move our energies towards Camden. Man, I fell in love with Camden in two weeks. It was crazy. People started coming to Christ like crazy. And that's pretty much what happened with 10th. And 10th, I came back in 10th and they said, well, we're gonna do it. Now, here's the Holy Ghost glue. 10th Presbyterian Church, the elders, had had a constant prayer going for a long, for many years that God would plant, they particularly set up, Presbyterian work in camp. Praying for almost 18 years and marrying was just about in tears when I said I was going to Camden. And he told me they have been praying for 18 years that a church would be mm. called in Camden. Doug planted and pastored in Camden from 2011 to 2018. While there, he opened a church planning residency so other guys coming through could have the same experience he had while he was at 10th and Epiphany. Planters who went through that residency have gone on to plant in Wilmington, Baltimore, LA, Brooklyn, Gloucester City, which is sometimes referred to as White Camden, the Bronx, Miami, and more. You know, those dudes, when they call me, they say, what's up, Pop? And, you know, I got sons of every race, Mike, <laughs> yeah. that are planting churches, making disciples, loving their wives, living out this gospel missionally and community in this hostile world, making disciples and planting churches. Two of those guys have residencies going right now. And so I look forward to spiritual grandsons planting churches. Yeah, it was a good time for my time at Calvary, I mean, at Epiphany Camden. Man, my son got married there, so I got a granddaughter. 
I got grandkids and a, and a daughter-in-law at my time there. I mean, the Lord just wrote a book during that time, graduated from seminary during that time. It was an amazing, amazing, amazing time, man. And um, yeah, Epiphany Camden is deep, dear in my heart. I get emotional talking about it. Since 2018, Doug has been serving as an associate director with Acts 29, a global church planting network. In particular, his efforts have been focused on planting and coaching urban church planters in the U.S. But in 2019, a series of conversations paved the way for a new initiative, Grimke Seminary. Yeah, Grimke was an African-American Presbyterian. Father was a slave owner. Mother was a slave. His father, before he died, sold his brother told his son who took over the farm to free Francis and his other brother Archibald upon his death, and he didn't. So Francis fled to actually be a valet in the Confederate Army, and then he fled from the from there, and emancipation came. He wound up at HBCU, Lincoln. His aunt, known as the abolitionist Grimke sisters, used money to help pay for him to go to school and his brother Archibald. They both went to Lincoln. He went on to another HBCU, um, Howard University, and then on to Princeton under Charles Hodge. So as I came into Presbyterianism, you know, Mike, Presbyterianism is super white. I just was trying to understand that paradigm, and there had to be African-Americans. So Francis Grimke was one of the guys I, I remember growing up in Patterson, New Jersey, as when we did Black History Month in our school, they would put up. James Weldon Johnson, Langston Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Francis Grimke. He was always the one I never knew because he had that weird slant on his E, on his name. And yeah, so I remember recalling him from back when I was seven years old. And then I just did a study on him back in about 2007, 2006, fell in love with him, found out he was a part of the early stages of developing out the NAACP where his brother was the founding president. And I just fell in love with him. He was married and loved his wife and preached the gospel, served at a church for about 55 to 56 years, the same church in Washington, D.C. And then from that, brother, um, that was in my soul, man. So when I tried to develop a, a urban program for many, many years and I kept running into snags with multiple institutions, I won't say their names, but three or four institutions, they always came down to an urban degree, and most of the reformed institutions just don't like doing that because in their mind, it's going to be a financial drain. Hmm. So by God's grace, man, we just launched it independent. And at my church in Virginia, man, my pastor, Brian Laughlin, man, and the team said, we just going to do it. So we built the whole program. <laughs> Mike, I'm not, even, I'm not even joking. Like one day I said, man, we all start a seminary. And I never forget he said, yeah. He walked over to the board and he said, what class is what we do, did he? And I said, well, boom, 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 boom. He said, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? He took a picture of it. Like three weeks later, there was like a syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> I said, these white dudes is fast. <laughs> I've been trying to do this for 10 years. <laughs> I said, what, you, what, what is this? And we're doing this seminar. Like for real, for real? Oh, yeah, man, we're going to go ahead and do it. It's a good idea. I, I couldn't believe it. I kept waiting for something bad to happen. <laughs> it mm. didn't. Nothing bad happened. <laughs> and so, I mean, it happened so fast and beautiful. And then, you know me, I just invited my friends. Love Chris Atwell. Love Dr. Tony Morita and 
Dwayne Bond, and we just gathered a team. And I said, guys, we're starting a seminary. I need you to come to Richmond and have a meeting, and we're going to form a board. I want you to consider being on board. They said, okay. I called Eric Mason, and I said, man, I need y'all to be visiting professors. Okay. That's it, though? Yeah. All right, I got to go. <laughs> Call Carl Ellis. He said, I'm on. Mike, it happened so beautiful and fast. <laughs> Again, I was still waiting for lightning to strike. You know what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. man, God just beautifully built it. And by God's grace, now we got 100 students. So the uniqueness of us, what we said in that meeting was, we want to be a seminary with pastors training pastors. We particularly love Spurgeon's model of the pastor's college. And we wanted to do a recapitulation in some regards with a 2018 and beyond twist so our model was pastors training pastors for the church. And much like Spurgeon, you had to be recommended from the church. Yeah, you just can't be a dude that wants to go to seminary and learn. You have to be recommended, either a pastor or a pastor that's approved by his pastors with pastoral calling. Man, by God's grace, we launched 2019. We'll graduate our first class in December of this year. Wow. And we're up about 100 students. And we have the urban program, which we call Grimkey Urban. And the vision is really for it to serve guys whose story kind of parallel yours, right? Absolutely. You know me, Mike. Me and you both were trying to get degrees, but we were self-taught and grimy and entrepreneurial. And we were invested in early. So God gave us great places for us to do ministry. That's not the regular story. So my particular posture towards it as president is I want to make sure our school is accessible and affordable and pastorally academic, meaning, yeah, you need to be academic because we have to engage the devils and the discussions of the day with the gospel. But you got to do it with a pastoral posture. You know, Van Til says all theology starts with God. So so it is in the pastorate. So in light of that, brother, we made the cost effective. And I've done my best Mm -hmm. to bring the best urban, suburban, and center city practitioners as professors to be at that school, to pour their souls into these students. We wanted to do something particular for our hearts. There is always a, a strong level of diversity in every class where there is Black, white, Asian, Latino, authors on books in every class. We've tried to create an experience where these guys are ever impacted. We want seminary to feel like you're being pastored and trained Mm -hmm. by us, not you got to turn this paper in or we're going to kick you out. (laughs) And by God's grace, man, I have a, for the urban program, man, I had a bunch of churches jump in and said, Doug, don't turn nobody away. So yeah, so Green Key's been great. Oh, man, and students are amazing. I love them. I rejoice that God has, that he would take this little nappy-head boy from Patterson (laughs) (laughs) and let me be a pastor, a professor, and a president. That's bananas. And a (laughs) pop-pop. When I think about Doug's story, I think a lot about that drive he made between 10th Presbyterian and Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia. It's a journey of contrasts white and black, rich and poor, 
traditional and innovative, all of which have their place in the kingdom of God. And in all the years I've known Doug, he's moved fluidly between those spaces and continues to today. And in that time, a lot has happened. Ten years ago in the Reformed world, there was an emerging confluence of traditional churches, like Tenth, new upstart movements like Acts 29, and Reformed Black Christians, as evidenced in places like the Reformed African American Network, now called The Witness, and the Reformed Hip Hop Movement, with artists like Lecrae, Shylin, and others sampling John Piper and rapping about the limited atonement. But there's been a growing divide, especially between white and black Christians, over tensions around race, the Black Lives Matter movement, Trumpism, and so forth. Doug has managed to maintain a foot in both worlds, working to plant new churches in black communities while still partnering with organizations like Acts 29 that are majority white. I asked him how he's navigated those tensions over the years. So I live in both worlds, have lived in both worlds. A lot of those things, Mike, I've been married a long time, 25 years. I had to wrestle with that. My family wasn't big on me marrying a white girl, and her family sure wasn't big on her marrying a black dude. So therefore, the struggles I had with my in-laws and struggle my wife had with some of my family members, we had to deal with that. And so by the time, Mike, I get to pastoral ministry and coming to know you, I got Lord Save Me in 96. And so by the time I land at you, I've already had to fight through and struggle as an interracial couple with mixed kids, with opposition from family members. So now I've got years of learning, understanding, mentoring, discipleship, development from both African-American, Latino, Asian, and white cats teaching me, challenging me, forcing me into the word of God, forcing me to deal with it. And then my wife, (laughs) there's no getting around it. I gotta work this through. However, some guys might rallied around the idea and the theological underpinning of reform theology and theology period. However, often those were the doctrines of grace and we agreed on a bunch of theology. However, there wasn't a whole lot of race discussed in them early years when that thing was coming together. We talked about complementarianism. We talked about deep theology, impeccability. We talked about our favorite theologians. We began to read books. We began to go to conferences. TGC, T4G were birthed then. Me and you were at GCA. We were reading this and studying that and seminaries were happening and guys were going and all this. And we never had a real conversation about the gospel and race. And things happen in culture from African-Americans being killed by police. In many ways, those conversations begin to happen and some of white evangelicals pushed back on that and we thought we were brothers and family and in. And when we disagreed about some race stuff, it felt like we were being shut up and put in our place. I was taught Imago Dei. I was taught all nations, kindreds, and tongues, revelation. I was taught Ponta Ta Ethne in all nations and what's the name? I was taught all of those things by mentored and discipled by my white brothers. And they weren't white, they were my brothers. 
We were home. We were reformed. We were all of that stuff. And then when I say, that's racism, I'm told, nah. And then there's this deep analytical whataboutism that begins to develop. And as long as I talked in the stream in the lane, it felt like I was being accepted. But if I pushed back, I felt like eviction notices were coming. And well, I didn't have to get evicted because I kind of didn't feel in once that happened. And so a real conversation about racing the gospel hadn't happened. So yeah, so I wasn't as banged up and angry about it because my God had wrestled me down like he did Jacob and already broke my hip. And I had to live that with my wife and to see my mother-in-law who despised me hmm. come to faith and love me. I mean, gosh, there's not a greater fan on this earth than my mother-in-law. She is the, one of the greatest ladies, Christians I know. She loves me and she despised me with hmm. racial slurs. So God had shown me so much. So my heart wasn't fully broken, but some others' hearts were fully broken. And this rift and this thing happened. And I think we're still rippling it through. I've said this and I'll say it to you. I truly believe that we have not. If I was on Zoom, you'd see my books because, you know, dudes got to swag out on Zoom with their books <laughs> behind them. If you looked on my shelf, I got the creeds of Christendom. Um, by Shaft, you know, and all of all those creeds from the apostles to Athanasius to confessions, we haven't done one on the gospel and race in history. Hmm. And so if the power players of Big Eva seek to determine what we, how it works, well, I choose not to play. And if your response to your disagreement is only social media, I choose not to play. I don't make disciples on social media and I don't submit to Big Eva. That's a construct and an idea. God has called me to make disciples, president of college, a seminary. And so I want us, like our church fathers, let's come up with a confession and a creed on the gospel and race. Let's set this thing off in a way that will bless our great-great-grandchildren because that's how often God used the church to come up with doctrinal positions. I mean, the five points of Calvinism are a response <laughs> to a doctrine that was considered heretical, right? <laughs> yeah. And we had to do something about it. When are we going to do that with race? And so I've said that for so, so long. Eric Mason says that. And so I think, Mike, to your question, and man, the phenomenal of Reformed theology for the urban context to the suburban and center city context with the rise of Tim Keller, beautiful theology, and with the rise of all the, the networks and all those things that birthed out was a beautiful thing. Many of us planted churches. Never heard. I never heard a church plant, Mike. I learned that when I got to your house in Orlando. When I got to Orlando, y'all told me about church planting. I never heard of that stuff. I had to go to the room and try to look it up because y'all was saying <laughs> stuff I never heard. And so all that burst out of there. And some beautiful things have been birthed out of the mess of that. And now when we get to this Black Lives Matter thing, 
the organization in which, you know, is antithetical to the gospel. It's anti-Christian. The organization, period. Full stop. However, the idea of Black Lives Matter, I'm just a Vantillian presuppositionalist. Yes. <laughs> the Imago Dei says when God made man, they were good. I, that's what I read one time. Yes, so this inherent dignity in the image bearers, yes, they matter. And that's not a controversial anti any other matter, right? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's just a raw statement. And if we're going to play games like that, you know, I got into an argument with one guy and he told me, Black Lives Matter? I said, well, sir, I don't even have that up. If you want to argue that, yes, that's my answer, yes. And he says, well, all lives matter. And I said to him, where was the all lives matter movement during slavery? Hmm. Jim Crow and slavery is antithetical to the gospel. And for years, it was upheld by institutions, Christian institutions. African-Americans couldn't even go to Dallas Theological Seminary. Now they can, and it's amazing. And also, <laughs> some of the best theologians I know went to Dallas, including my pastor, Dr. Eric Mason. And so, Dr. Evans, one of my heroes in the faith. And so, yeah, but the church was compliant with that. We have to deal with that. And I fear, I don't want to say fear, I have concerns that Black folk are going to go off into the corner for safety and solitude if there's not going to be real conversations of unity and the gospel. African-American, Latino, and white evangelicals aren't just going to accept non-conversations about the gospel and race. It's not going to happen anymore. And it should. we're one yeah. big, crazy Skittles family. We got to have this talk. All the creeds were to deal with some spooky potential division and splits in Christendom. So let's deal with this one as well. And not from a debate posture, but from a unity posture. I mean, you know what I love about, about all of this is you've mentioned an, uh, a couple of times this kind of entrepreneurial thing. And I think, I think the temptation, when you become disillusioned with these existing institutions, the tendency is to go okay, the institution has a problem. So not only am I going to object to the institution, I'm going to object to its creeds and I'm going to swing the pendulum in the other direction. And so you see people walking away from the faith or dramatically recontextualizing, you know, their, their theological framework for understanding the faith or, or all of that. And what I love about your story in this is your willingness and your conviction to speak openly, to speak boldly, about the failures of the evangelical tradition to address race, but you're not throwing out, you know, the proverbial baby with the bathwater. And in fact, you're doing something constructive and building a new institution that can help to move confessional Christianity forward in quarters where existing institutions may have lost credibility. That is my hope, Mike. The way forward is not isolation. The way forward is invitation. We've got to invite people to this big, bold, beautiful gospel we have and challenge them with it. It is the glue that holds us together. Therefore, I don't want to rob God of his mediatorial glory that I can go on and do a black thing on my own. Hmm. You know how easy it would be for me to do a black thing? Well, doggone it, I'm black and I could do black stuff. Man, but when I look at the scriptures, I'm mindful of Isaiah when, in the book of Isaiah, when God says, it's too light a thing that you would only gather 
the children of Israel, but I have made you a light to the nations. Hmm. Oh, like, you know how easy it would be for us to just do a white thing and a black name like? But mm -hmm. God says, that is reductionalistic whack, and it's not who I am. You can't, it's not who I am. I am a God of all nations. It's He tells God's people, it's too light a thing for you to just try to gather the children of Israel. Nah, I'm expanding and extending my name and my reign to all people. And from that diaspora, from all, from that scattering of all people, I'm going to make one people. I think God is, this is Doug Logan's ghetto translation. God is like, you know how easy it is that I could have just made y'all my people? <laughs> you know how easy, I did it. <laughs> I did it. I called Abraham from Earl to Chaldees and I made your people. Okay. But <laughs> man, I've got a bigger plan than that. You guys are thinking too small. It's too light a thing. Mike, I don't know why I'm in the hood, why I was raised in the hood, but it wasn't punishment. And I don't know why some people were raised in the suburbs, but that wasn't a prize. He put us there. In these places, not as a prize or punishment, but for his purpose. And so I'm not going to sequester my missionality to <laughs> one area. I'm running to the cross. And if we all run into the cross, we got to work it out. The cross is for figuring it out because we don't have to get united, Mike. We already united. We got to walk in it. So ain't no separation of Christians of any race. We are already united. We have to learn how to walk it out to bring God glory, period. I'm committed to that. I got mixed kids, Puerto Rican grandkids. My son married, he's a mixed kid. He married a mixed kid. Listen, these combos is getting crazy and crazy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I need them to know at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rose away. And if that's true, then we got to fight for this family, period. Hmm. And that's what I'm committed to doing. That's what Grimke Seminary is committed to doing. That's what Remnant Church, where I serve as pastor, is committed to doing. And that's what the Logan family, this generation and beyond, is committed to. I can't tap out. I got crazy cousins in my natural family, and I got some crazy brothers in my spiritual family. <laughs> well, brother, I so appreciate you making time for this. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing your story, and thanks for uh, thanks for being my friend for all these years. I love you a lot. Oh man, love you so much, bro. And first he sings, and then he goes, and what it means, it's hard to know. You can learn more about Doug's work with Grimke Seminary at www.grimkeyseminary.org. The link is in our show notes. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. You can also send us feedback at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. This show is a production of Christianity Today. It was produced by me, was edited by Mark Owens, and our theme song is Eden Was a Garden by Roman Candle. Our music is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. 
Thanks for listening. See you next week.